Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him Hello and welcome to episode 4-334 of the Run Run Live podcast. This is a milestone podcast. With this episode, I have caught up to Steve, who's currently on episode 334 of Fidipidation. See? Consistency, tortoise in the hair, and all that. Well, anyhow, great to have you along with me today on this sweet, sweet spring adventure up here in New England. Welcome and thank you for taking the time to download this podcast and listen to it. Maybe you're out on your run and you can feel your heart beating, breath in your lungs and your feet hitting the ground. Maybe you're in your car with the slow thrum of the road vibrating through your body. And maybe you're at work pretending to be interested in that thing you do to keep the bailiff away from your door. Whatever it is, I've got a fantastic show for you today. See? See how I use the hyperbole there? I'm telling you it's fantastic to hypnotize you into thinking that way. I have no idea if it's fantastic or not. I mean, really, that would mean it's so good it can only be considered as a fantasy. And if that's true, you should probably upgrade your fantasies. Words have power. Thoughts have power. The power to teach, the power to console, the power to solve the wounds of a soul. Don't discount the power of words. Words are the manifestation of thought, and thought is the precursor to action. Sorry, meandered off track a bit there. Anyhow, my training has been going fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. I am right where I need to be for Boston. Everyone should stop right now. Stop whatever you're doing and pray for good weather on Patriots Day. Work with me here. I need meet somewhere, you know, mid-40s, overcast, maybe a slight drizzle, a little mist. Five-mile-an-hour tailwind? Work with me. If we all work together, we can manifest this. I finished off another build cycle of a couple 50-mile weeks that culminated in a really good showing at Stu's 30K last Sunday. At the end of a cycle, on tired legs, on a difficult course, I ran a discipline, negative split. I'd laid low for the first eight or nine miles and then raced the second half. And it was a real confidence builder for me. I felt like I knew what I was doing. And I was in, in control the whole way. And I closed it hard and ended up averaging spot on my qualifying pace at the end of the day uh, with a nice negative split. So that's that's awesome. 
makes me makes me feel good, lifts a weight off of my shoulders. So today we have a chat with Nate, who you may recognize as Nate from Harrisburg from the Extra Mile podcast. I had a couple conversations recently about the relationship between alcohol and running. And I wanted to explore it more with people who know more than I do, which isn't hard. Nate is a counselor who has worked with addiction and also a runner, so I thought this would be a good place to start. I don't claim to have any expertise here, and I know I've been affected by addiction, and I'm sure many of you have as well. And I'm not here to minimize the topic or glorify it. I just wanted to have a hopefully thoughtful conversation about it. And I wish I could do more, but for better or worse, today, Nate and I have a conversation around alcohol and running. In the first section, I'm going to talk about how to program workouts into your running watch. And in the second section, I'll ramble on about some other general random crap like I usually do. So I had a really good race last weekend. I ran well and disciplined, and my body showed glimpses of race fitness and ability that I frankly haven't seen in a long while. I've been there before, approaching the peak of a solid, long, committed training cycle, and I remember those days when I crossed the finish line, fists raised in glorious triumph. I do remember being this strong and healthy before, and how tenuous and slippery the foothold is on those peaks. We remember the glorious days, the big successes, the big victories, but we don't remember the hard work that went into making those triumphs possible. The long days and the hard efforts and continuous, insistent, focused work that got us to those peaks, those fade into a dreary montage, and all we remember is a summary. We remember that we are capable of these great things, but we forget that we need to do the work that goes into attaining them. The meal is remembered. The recipe is lost. And the same is true for failure. We remember the pain of falling down, but we forget the thousands of choices that led to it. When you crest the big hill and unexpectedly find there is a flatter bit of road and the going gets easier, it's easy to relax and fall prey to an entropy of spirit. Whether the slope is steep and your breathing is labored, or you find yourself moving with strength and ease, the work is always there. And remember to smile when you find that ease, and congratulate yourself for climbing to this point. But remember that the work that is done in the times of ease is the work that leads to success in the times of strain. The trick is to hold the smiles in one hand and the work in the other, and keep moving forward. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. All right, programming workouts into your Garmin device. If you are in a structured training program, sometimes it's easier to program your workout into your running watch. Yeah, sometimes it is, so I'm going to talk about that. I have a Garmin 310 XT. This is your basic Garmin device. It's a bulked-up version of the tried-and-true 205 and 305 series. It is waterproof, has heart rate, has good GPS, good battery life, and it just works for running without a lot of hassle. Regardless of what Garmin device you have, most will have the ability to use structured 
pre-designed workouts. In this article, I'm going to show you how to create and execute workouts. So, where do the workouts live on your watch? Well, the Garmin firmware on the watch is not the most intuitive or user-friendly, but it is functional once you get it figured out. On your watch, there will be a mode button. And when your watch is powered on, hit the mode button and you will get a menu. Select training to get the training sub-menu by using the arrow keys to select the option and hitting the enter button. And that's the basic user flow. Mode to enter a menu, arrow keys to highlight, enter to select. If you want to go back up the menu structure to back out, so to speak, just keep hitting mode until you're back where you started at the main screen. So once you have selected the training sub-menu, you will see a workouts option. Select that, and you will get two choices, interval and custom. Interval will let you create a set of intervals on the fly, but I seldom use that feature. Custom workout is where you will find all the workouts that you have created. In custom workouts, it will list any workouts that you have created and saved. Typically, you will create the workouts on Garmin Connect, which is the website that Garmin stores all your results on when you sync. There is an option to create custom workouts on the watch itself, but that will make you crazy trying to figure out which little buttons to push to get what you want. Much easier to create custom workouts on Garmin Connect and then send them to your watch through the sync. And I'm going to walk you through how to do this and post a video of it, but let's assume you have already created a workout. But once you have the workout, sync to your watch to run the workout Make your way through the menus, just like we talked about, training, workouts, custom workouts, and you will now see your created workout in the stored list. Select it with the arrow keys and hit enter. You will get a pop-up on the watch with the default option of do workout. Select that. Now you may think that you have told the watch that you want to do the workout. Yes, you have, but, and this is the part that gets me all the time, you still have to tell the watch to start the workout. So you hit the normal start button on the watch after you say do workout, and it will now walk you through the workout. Now, when you're doing a workout, you can either have the watch automatically progress through the phases of the workout or program it to wait for you to start each phase. I usually just let the watch do it because the whole point of programming a workout is so I don't have to push the buttons and I can focus on the workout. I don't have to remember anything. Another important thing to remember is that when the watch finishes the workout, it's done. It doesn't care if you're still on the road. That workout is done as far as it's concerned and it stops tracking. If you want to keep going, if you're not back to the barn yet, you got to hit start again to track the rest of the workout. Depending on what you have put as your target in a workout segment, for example, pace or heart rate, the watch will now nag at you to stay in that zone. It will do this by buzzing and displaying some informative text like speed up or slow down or in target zone. And this sounds good in theory, but many times when I'm deep in a workout, I can't read that text. And it would have been better to just have some sort of simple icon like a plus and minus sign, but nope, they don't do that. So you just have to get accustomed to where you are in relation to the workout and ignore most of the nagging. You also want to set your target zones fairly wide if you're using pace, so the alarms aren't so nervous. 
I usually do a plus or minus 10 seconds per mile buffer. For example, if the target pace is 8 minutes per mile, then set the low end at 7.50 and the top end at 8.10. And this way the watch isn't screaming at you all the time, because in practice you can't correct your pace that quickly. And the watch can't track it even if you could. So, how do you program the workout in Garmin Connect? At this point in the discussion, I'm going to give you a link to a quick screen capture video I did on how to create workouts in Garmin Connect because it's way easier to show you than to tell you. In summary, it takes a little getting used to, but when you have a structured workout to do, it's surprisingly simple to program it into your watch for guidance. It's not perfect, and there are nuances that you have to get used to, but it can be very helpful. I like it because it lets me focus on executing the workout instead of worrying about what I have to do when. And in some of these particularly challenging workouts, my math skills and my ability to tell time get a bit funky. So having it programmed into the watch, pre-programmed, keeps me from having to think about it. And now for today's featured interview. Okay, so Nate, welcome. Thank you. I'm uh, Nate from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I have been a therapist. I love what I do, and I love to work with people who, I'm a runner myself. I've done half and full marathons myself and been listening to Chris for a while. And when Chris reached out to me, I was like, absolutely, I'd love to help in whatever way I can. Husband and father of two two little girls, four-year-old and a 10-month-old, so that definitely keeps me busy. So that's kind of what's bringing me here today. That's great. I see you're supposed to ask for me to ask, give me the 200 words on who you are and what you do. And you just skipped that whole, you screwed up my protocol. Yeah, I already know, <laughs> I already know what the, the question is. So as a therapist, unwrap that a little bit for me. What does that mean? I basically get paid to listen and be an objective perspective, whatever issue people are coming to me. So that can be anything from depression, anxiety. I do a lot of marriage issues and I listen and I provide a different way of thinking about whatever issue they're going through. So you ask questions. I do ask questions. You ask open-ended questions like what's on your mind? Yes. And what brings my first question is typically, so what brings you in today? Right. The open-ended question. Got it. And uh, that was one of my tricks for people who uh, are doing job interviews Mm -hmm. is to uh, ask the first question instead of waiting for them to ask the first question, which is always something like, tell me about yourself, something like that. Always ask the first question. And that first question should be, so what was it about my background or my resume that caused you to bring me in today? And that way you've taken control of the interview. Yes. How about that, huh? A little like jujitsu there. Yeah. Jujitsu. So specifically, the thing that's on my mind is alcohol abuse, alcoholism. I don't know what what we call it these days, but this correlation between drinking and running. I mean, running is sort of a pub sport. We see it on social media. We see it everywhere, right? I mean, running is associated with drinking, mm-hmm. right? I like to tell people the two most popular, of the three most popular races with women, you know what two of them are? One's Napa Valley and the other one is Wine Glass. So you have two wine-themed marathons. So it's not a sex thing either. It's across the board. There's a correlation with alcohol and running. Do you see that as well? 
Absolutely. In my own experience, I did my first marathon was Marine Corps Marathon. And while they gave us a beer at the end, I ended up giving that to somebody else. They were really happy about that. But it's everywhere. And whether people are going out for a beer after a run or the night before a race or whatever it might be. And also, it's just like that reward thing, I guess, something like that. Right. So it's my reward for running. But it also creates a habit. It creates a feedback loop, right? Yes. Yes. So when I do this, I get this, and you have that feedback loop, and you burn in a habit, and habits, they're automatic, and that's what makes them difficult, right? Mm -hmm. So in your practice, do you have people who are challenged with uh, addictions? Yes, some of them are. Uh, My background is actually in the mostly alcohol and drug addictions, and so I've been able to work with a lot of different people who have addiction. It could be the other things. It could be food. It could be sex. It could be anything. So do all addictions sort of have the same pattern, though? I would say the drug and alcohol has a different pattern than say the other things like food or sex or something like that, they're still reinforced and they're still kind of go in that circle, but they're different, but they're similar. That makes sense. So what's the pattern of a drug or an alcohol addiction? I think it's basically bottom line. It goes, I'm doing it just socially or kind of recreationally. I enjoy it. It makes me feel good, but I'm not doing it for any emotional reasons. And then it progresses. I do it because it makes me feel good. It also makes me not have to feel the other emotions, whatever I'm going through, that it just gets, again, that pattern. It's more than just a habit, but it's something that just really gets ingrained in their social world, who they spend time with, and how they spend their time. So what are the indicators, to use a clinical term, right? So I'm out and I'm having beers with my running buddies or I'm out doing something. What are some of the indicators that might be something you got to watch out for or you're on a slippery slope? The biggest question I would ask, as you said at the beginning, I asked a lot of questions, is how is it impacting your relationship with your significant others, your spouse, your friends? Are you going, so after you go out with friends, are you going back and drinking more? Another thing is, is it becoming like a binge type of a deal where you're drinking, maybe you're not drinking every day or every time you run, but it's a binge thing where you're drinking a whole ton. And maybe that's not directly impacting like your rest of your life, but it's definitely impacting that day. So there's negative impact on your life. Right. So what it does is it when it is get out of control that you're doing it when you're not necessarily choosing to do it. And I think also the reason that you're doing it, whether you're out after a run, after a marathon, you get a, a beer, I see no problem with that. That's you're celebrating and that's great. But then if it's after each run or if it's like you look at the drinking as a reward oh, I did this hard run or I did this hard track work and I'm going to go home and, and drink a beer or go to the bar and drink a beer or a whole ton after for that matter. Yeah, it's probably not one beer or two beers or three right. beers that's a problem. It's the three beers at the bar and then going home and drinking six more. Exactly, Chris. Yep. Right. There's some biochemistry here as well. I mean, it's not just psychological because what I've found is that from running, if you've been running long enough, you know what the runner's high is Mm -hmm. and you know what that gives you, right? You know, there's this sort of uh, pleasure center that a hard workout or any workout will stimulate. And I think addictions stimulate the same biochemistry. So I think there's an overlap there. 
Mm-hmm. Is that true? Absolutely. It's that making that I feel good. The running makes me feel we can technically be addicted to running, too. And I think I know I, I've listened to you long enough to know that there's times where we both probably are addicted to the running. It's like you need it to survive first to a certain extent, but it makes us feel good. Right. And so same with the alcohol. It makes us feel good. It makes us feel like we're takes us out of our experience and it really just genuinely feels good to a certain extent because then it gets over the edge again like right you said. yeah and i see that with running a lot with people it follows the same trajectory where they start and then they get hooked and then it's they just keep doing more and more and more and more it's the same thing the dose has to be bigger right mm-hmm. 5k isn't enough 10k isn't enough ultra marathons aren't enough and eventually they're injured and it takes over their lives Right. So there's definitely a parallel there in the trajectory, right? Absolutely. And backing away from that. So one of the things I think about a lot is how do you back away from that, right? When you get to be older and you can't do what you can used to be able to do, again, it's a dosage problem, right? How do you still maintain that healthy level of uh, endurance sports without overdosing yourself, so to speak, right? Right. Because you need sustainable. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting, the parallel. Absolutely. Now, the other thing you talked about is that it shows up a lot in your relationships, but alcoholics are really good at designing their lifestyles around their alcoholism, mm-hmm. right? Yes. So they design their friends and their situations and their living and their jobs. They design all that stuff around their drinking. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's so true because that's why it's so hard to back away. But I think also... On the other hand, if your buddy can tell that, hey, this guy, he drinks, he's going to drink a six pack on the at home, too. Hopefully they would be like, hey, you got to back off here a little bit. You know, that social pressure possibly would be a good thing. But I think you hang around other people who drink and I can give a perfect example of this in regards to running. I remember my first marathon again in 2002 Marine Corps. My Facebook page was just plastered with people who were doing what I was doing or even more or had more crazy than I was. And so I was like, oh, well, it's not crazy to go out here in this polar vortex. This person's doing it. So why not? <laughs> and, and so now I don't necessarily have all those connections. I'm not running as much. And so, you know what? I didn't run all that much this winter outside. And so that impacted my running and how much I did and what I would be willing to do outside. Same thing with the drinking. I think, oh, my buddy's drinking more than me. It's all right. I don't have a problem. So that's kind of what my perspective on that is. Well, the summary is it's the people you hang around with really have a major impact on your behaviors. Absolutely. And and sometimes that's Mm self-designed and sometimes you just fall into it. So that's another one of those indicators you want to look at is have you, whether thoughtfully or or non-thoughtfully, designed your social situation around your behavior? Right. Absolutely, Chris. And I think Jim Brown talks a lot about about that, but we talk a lot about his quote about top five people who you're interacting with. And if all of those people are drinking a lot, then maybe you need to take a look at that. I mean, at least be aware of how that's impacting us. So that being said, I'm sure you not only deal with people who are struggling with addiction directly, but you also deal with people who have close relations Mm -hmm. where it's impacting them, like a husband or a wife or a, a mother or a daughter or that sort of thing. How do you counsel people who are having to live through someone else struggling with addiction? 
That's a great question, Chris. The biggest thing is recognizing where they're enabling that behavior. How much are they helping the person who's drinking too much to have the alcohol or to bail them out in the sense of family situations and just making sure that they're our society says drinking is totally cool and, and that go for it and enjoy it. But I think what this loved one is could be doing would be to facilitate them continuing to drink too much. And so I encourage them. They're just confused. They don't know what to do. So another thing that I would do is outside of kind of what am I doing to enable them is the question of what do I need to know about the addiction? So do I need to go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting with my loved one? Do I need to go to Al-Anon, which is basically the group for loved ones? And so being able to know how to handle the situation. Also, they will often say, you can drink in front of me. It's not a big deal. I think that's a little bit of BS in most cases. But I don't think that that loved one has to necessarily stop drinking altogether. It's very challenging, and I walk through that with them. Well, I think you have to ask them the question, what do they get out of the other person's behavior? Because mm -hmm. if they're putting up with it, then they're getting something from it, mm -hmm. right? Right. There's some benefit to them. Like if I let him drink, he's not going to bother me about being overweight or something like that. Right. That's, a, that's another great question. It's a sticky wicket. How do you get better from this? It's a process. This is another thing that always bothered me about mm -hmm. this is that if you look at somebody like an AA, they'll say that you have to hit bottom before you can climb up. Why? Why can't you stop it halfway down and get better? Excellent question. I don't think you have to go all the way down, but I do think you have to have something pretty significant. So that could be, why do they say that? I think because a lot of times that's what it takes. So if somebody, whether it's a DUI or just a fallout with the spouse or like if you don't stop drinking, I'm leaving type of thing, I mm. think you almost have to have something like that. Just like you have the, the heart attack and then suddenly that person is willing to do what it takes to get healthy again. I believe that you're going to change when you believe that the pain of change is less than the pain of staying the same. What that means is that there's pain in both cases. And if I'm willing to continue to have that pain, another consequence sometimes people get is losing a job or something like that. Do they have to? Absolutely not. But a lot of times that's what it takes. Doesn't make sense to me, but the part that makes sense is people have to come to it themselves. You can't make them. Absolutely. Right? And in order to come to it themselves, they have to have some sort of self-awareness. And that self-awareness can be triggered by a negative event. Mm -hmm. The question would be, if I think about the third way, if I think out of the box, would be how do I trigger that without the negative event? That's very difficult. I don't have an answer. Yeah, I don't have an answer either. We have to decide whether is to whether or not we're going to keep going down that path or if we want to live a little differently. In a lot of cases, it's just a gradual thing. I mean, I... Related back to running. I mean, I didn't start running marathons right away. I did just a short runs and then you do your 5Ks and you're like, oh, this running thing's awesome. And then you might skip over 10Ks. I pretty much did. And you do a half marathon. I'm like, oh my goodness, I did a half marathon. I can do anything now. And then you go and you kind of just progressively get more into it. And I think that's what you have to do. It's a gradual thing. It's not a, all of a sudden. To recover, you're saying? Yeah. 
So it's a process. You know, the, one of the things that we realize about processes, especially when humans are involved, is they're not linear. Mm-hmm. It's not how do I get from A to B? There's going to be a lot of squiggly lines between there. So you got to be willing to fail a little bit too and learn. Absolutely. So what's sort of the process? Is there a process of getting better? I mean, it just sounds like self-awareness. It's self-awareness. Actually, it's interesting. I will often, if not all the time, suggest some sort of exercise when people are trying to recover or to feel better. It's interesting here, we're talking about runners, so they're already doing a lot of something probably. So I think maybe part of the recovery process could be if you're a big runner, maybe you pick up swimming or biking a little bit, or I guess you can go full into those as well. But you exercise is definitely a piece of, of the recovery process. And of course, you know, you could be switching one addiction for another addiction. It just happens to be a healthier addiction. Right. Right. Absolutely. When you do this recovery, right, if you've got somebody who's been uh, designing their life around alcohol, a hardcore runner, when you see this sort of thing, when they come out of that and they say, "Okay, I'm not drinking anymore. You just left a giant void in that person's life because, one, you don't have all that time you spent drinking Two, a lot of the people in situations that you used to be in. You're not going to be in anymore. Right. So you have a giant void in your life. How do you fill that void? You have to find something else that you enjoy. So that could be, I certainly would say that work is a very slippery slope with that. I could see becoming excessive in working could be a potential pitfall there if somebody wants to replace it with working. It could be family. I mean, that's a good way to spend the time. Yeah, I've seen people do it with religion, of course, right? They get super religious, Mm -hmm. uh, which is whatever floats your boat. But I think sort of meditation and yoga, those exercise, those sort of things. Uh, Journaling is big, right? Journaling helps a lot because it's another form of self-awareness and introspection. It allows you to get stuff out of your head. So any of those things, I think you could do it. But it's it's tough because you've burned in those habits over time. I'm a huge fan of journaling because it really helps you to get out of your head. And I think you've talked about this, Chris, but we, you know, when you think about the, the term, I call it brain dump. I don't know what the official clinical term is, but basically just writing down all the thoughts you're having and not judging anything, but just like throwing it down on paper. That really helps because you're able to, again, get out of your head. It leaves room for you to do some thinking, right? If, you're, yes. if your brain's all cluttered up with stuff you're worried about, um, it gives it a safe spot to put that stuff aside. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you can get on some thinking. All right. What would be your top three takeaways from this topic, Nate? If you had to give people some advice, what would you say it is. Mm -hmm. Given, you know, the disclaimer, you're a counselor, but I'm not even a certified coach. What I can do with this disclaimer on my end is that you're not in my office with me right now. And so this is general advice. And I would take into consideration a lot of things. With that being said, Chris, definitely number one is to look at who you're spending time with. Those people, they impact us more than we think. So maybe write down the top five people that you're spending time with and then calling somebody like me. And so what that does is, first of all, asking for help is huge. That is the number one barrier that I face on a daily basis for why people don't come to see me. They just don't want to ask for help. If you're a spreadsheet person or like to write things down, I would love to have you guys, this is something you could do whether you see a counselor or not. So you would write, how much am I drinking? Why am I drinking? How is it impacting my life? And then what am I doing training wise? And so writing those things down, maybe a couple other things, would help to kind of just that awareness that we've been talking about this whole call and making sure that we are able to have a better picture of 
why I'm doing what I'm doing. Yeah, it's harder to ignore. It's like weighing yourself every day when you're on a diet, right? Right, yeah. right. And and if you want for extra credit, you can throw in there how much money you're spending on it. I think that's something that my clients don't like doing, but it really, <laughs> really is helpful. Yeah. yeah. All right. Good. 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 We'll let you go. Thanks All right. For your input. All right. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Chris. All right. Cheers. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Selling change. All change is a sales job. People don't want to change. They want their situation to change. They want their discomforts to change. They want others to change. But seldom does anyone want to change. Change has to be sold. And how do you sell change? Well, there's lots of ways. One way is to paint a picture of how great everything will be when you change. If you do this, you will have a 300% return on investment and a three-month payback. You'll feel great. You'll be free. You'll have much more joy in your life if only you will change. In this way, leaders can create a compelling vision, a version of future states that induce people to change. Another way to sell change is to amplify any discomfort or pain that is associated with the current state. It's been famously stated that we only change when the pain of change outweighs the pain of staying where we are. We'll continue to lose $100,000 a day until we implement this change. You know, we sometimes call that opportunity cost, the cost of not changing. Our consumer goods industry is expert at convincing people to buy stuff by making them feel ugly or unloved. And in this way, they create a dynamic tension in the mind of the buyer that can only be resolved by buying or buying into the inherent change. And these two methods combined make a great effect. On the one hand, create a compelling future vision, and on the other, emphasize the discomfort of the current state and the risk of not doing anything. Then position your change project or product as a solution to resolve this dynamic tension between the pain of where you are versus the promise of where you could be. This is selling change. Now, a third way to create change is to access the animal brain and use fear. Politicians create changes by using fear. The best way to create fear is to start by telling you how bad everything is, but then telling you it's not your fault. To do this, they create a boogeyman to blame all the problems on. And this is the us versus them, or more accurately, the us versus other. It's not your fault, it's the other's fault. If you can create an enemy, an other, to be the manifestation of that fear, you can convince people to readily give up their freedom and act irrationally. The ultimate destination of fear of the others is a black place in history filled with atrocity. And that's a third world problem, right? That's a medieval problem. That can't happen here, can it? That can't happen now, can it? Well, let me remind you of the Red Menace of the 30s, the Blacklists of the 50s, the race riots of the 60s, the near-constant dehumanization of newcomers right now, today, in your community, to sell you the fear of others, so you will trade your morals cheaply and betray 
your intellect. But to return to our thinly veiled metaphor of change, the interesting thing about being a buyer or a seller is you don't have to. If someone is trying to sell you how miserable your current state is, you don't have to buy it. If someone is trying to sell you a Pollyanna vision of their future, you don't have to buy it. If someone is trying to sell you that it's not your fault, it's the fault of others, you don't have to buy. Because you know what? There are no others. There is only us. There is only me and you and all of us. And you know what else? It doesn't matter whose fault it is. We're all accountable. We're all responsible. There is only us, and we are the solution. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, it might be time to crack open a celebratory cold one, or reconsider that, but either way, you can celebrate reaching the end of episode 4-334 of the Run Run Live podcast. Have you noticed the new editing? This will be the second podcast with entirely outsourced content editing. Anybody having any quality issues? Let me know. I'm moving into my final race build cycles for the Boston Marathon. I'm right on track, very comfortable with my speed and fitness after Stu's last week. I am working on a race report for Stu's, so stay tuned for that. My next race is the Eastern States 20 Miler, uh, March 26th. It's on a Saturday this year because of Easter, and that will be my last pace run before Boston. I'm right on track. And I'd like to thank all my friends who have contributed to my Team Hoyt Fund for Boston. I can still use your help. If you can, I would appreciate it. I'm still planning to run the in and out of the Grand Canyon on Thursday, May 19th, whether you're too chicken to join me or not. The Groton Road Race is April 24th. And with the nice weather, it looks like we're going to have a really good year. We've uh, set up the virtual race option, so no matter where you are, you can... Sign up and run, and we'll send you one of our super nice 25th anniversary shirts. Just go to GrottenRoadRace.com. Next week, I have an interview with Neely Gracie, who is a pro-elite runner. She's just at the beginning of her career. Uh, She knocked out a sub-70 half at Philly and is making her debut at Boston this year at the Marathon Distance. And it was a super interesting talk. The next time you folks feel like saying something smarmy about millennials, you should listen to Neely and think about her. So we've been far too serious today. So to take you out, I'm going to give you a joke that you can tell your dog. You can try telling your cat, but this joke has not been cat-tested. And it doesn't work with dogs that have short attention spans like Jack Russell's or dogs that are just, you know, not very bright like Labs and Goldens. And it definitely won't work with deaf dogs. The good thing about my dog, and maybe your dog too, is that you can tell them the same joke as many times as you want and it's still going to be funny. And I don't know about you, but I talk to my dog. And for his part, Buddy acts interested when I talk to him. He also does emotional mirroring, which means that he senses from my tone of voice and my emotional state the essence of what I'm talking about, and he projects the appropriate matching emotion of interest or concern or hugs. And when you're telling this joke, you have to address the dog 
like you're talking directly to the dog. Taking them into your confidence. Make good eye contact. When I do this, Buddy will essentially lean into the conversation, which makes the punchline hilarious. I made this joke up to share with Buddy and to show him just how annoying some of his interactions with me are. Okay, ready? Got your dog's interest, right? You ready? A border collie, a Persian cat, and a llama walk into a bar. They walk up to the bartender. The bartender leans in close and says, Bark! (laughs) See, it's funny because the dog jumps about a foot in the air every time. (laughs) Tell your dog a joke and I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed. So hard it made him cry. Of a couple of 50-mile weeks, stupid dog.